Welcome to Dragon Talk. Yay! So excited to be here on the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I'm Greg Tito, and that's Shelly Mazanoble. Hello! You are making things happen. Over here. Yeah, like you're singing, you're you're tap dancing, you're making making things happen. It's a beautiful day, and I filled with vitamin D. And D. Wow, I feel like there's there's some some marketing thing we can do there for mm. vitamin D and D. Yeah. Take your centrum. We'll partner with the sun. <laughs> <laughs> we shall partner with my son, the, the sun. sun. My son would probably not do a partnership with D and D as a no, out. nor the sun. He doesn't like it. He wants to be away from the sun at all times. Yeah. Anyway, excited to speak to our guest this week. Humna Shahid uh, is here and is a very accomplished TTRPG player on the streams and has some really, uh, I think, awesome thoughts around it. So I can't wait uh, to get what they have in store for us. Excellent. This is going to be fun. I know, right? Yeah. Um, Very exciting. Um, I also wanted to make sure everyone knows that you are a part of my heist crew. I'm going to bring you in with a secret message from the Golden Vault. Okay. And everyone listening, you must go to these coordinates. Play that backwards through your CD player if you can find one. Uh, And you might find a secret treasure that will lead you to the Rebel's End. I I think I have a CD player in my car. I should have said record player. Damn it. Damn it. My Victrola Um, player. Kind of like the Golden Vault. Something that they might uh, use the, the music box that is associated with how you receive your messages from the Golden Vault. I know. Sometimes it plays music. Sometimes it gives you missions. Um, did you take the quiz to see which heist crew uh, member you would be? I did not, but I'm pretty sure I'm the bag man. Really? No, I don't know. Would I be the I bag feel man? Like, or the driver? I think... I could be the I, baby driver. Right. That's right. I think I... I think I'm the driver. You're the, do you like driving? Are you... Uh, no, but I think I would just be better, like, not in the fray. I don't know if I can be particularly... Quiet, stealthy, deft with two. I think I'd panic. Let's just say that. So that's the person you want driving the car or driving the cart. I just think like I just need you to come out and just be like, go. And then I can go. I'll just go. Right. Breakneck speed. I think that's that's what you need. Because I want to be part of the crew. Like I'm very much excited about participating in a heist adventure. I just don't know. If like in you'd really want real Shelly as part of your crew, <laughs> I just don't know. It depends. Some people have uh, hidden talents. Maybe you are a, a code breaker uh, or a safe cracker at heart. The decoy. You're the decoy. That's it. I could. I could be the decoy. Yeah, you could be the decoy. Okay. I don't All know right. if that's a that's a good thing because <laughs> that means you end up being. Uh, the ire of the law enforcement there. Would I though? I don't know. Well, you have I mean, to figure you, out how to get away. See, well, this is all could, the planning. This is what right. it, all, it all has to do. I mean, I would just be like, I didn't know what was happening. I'm, I am just here to perform. All of these discussions are going to be taking place uh, amongst <sighs> player Very character stressful. groups as they try to figure out how to overcome 
these 13 challenges uh, that are in Keys from the Golden Vault. Very exciting for those folks because you're right, it fits the the D&D group, you know, milieu so perfectly. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I'm, I maybe have been spending too much time thinking about it. And now I'm <laughs> crossing into the orbit. I'm like, what role would I be in this? But I, I'm just, I'm very, very curious to see how yeah. this plays out. Well, uh, maybe being the planner is more like being the brand manager I, for D&D. So. Well, you do know that I enjoy planning things. You might make a nice PowerPoint around uh, the, the heist. Lots, lots of Post-it notes. <laughs> Put it up on the scrum board. Yep, yep. All of the above. I don't like that word. Scrum? Yeah, not a fan. It feels like we're going to get into a fight, right? It's like, oh, yeah. we're going to get into the fray, into the scrum. Oh, yeah, Greg and Shelley, they had a, a bit of a scrum. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Oh, man. Yeah. One time I bit into a scrum and it was extremely what moldy. I don't know. It feels like a pastry for me. Oh, oh, interesting. Mm. Mm, Don't eat the scrum. It's gone bad. (laughs) (laughs) Or is the scrum what it is now that it's gone bad? That that apple looks like it's got a little bit of scrum. (laughs) (laughs) Just cut the scrum off. The rest of it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can make a scrum cake. (laughs) (laughs) One time I showed up to a holiday party, I hadn't had anything to eat. So all I had was scrum cake. It was scrumptious. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Sorry. Pun to its furthest. I don't know. Possible reaches. I don't even know why we went there. Can you, Greg Tito, the king of segues, get us out of this? I sure can (laughs) by telling you all about our book, Welcome to Dragon Talk, which Uh, is out everywhere now. It's on Audible. It has many of these uh, wonderful segues and or transitions from one bit to the next in our own voices. And you get to hear us read them out loud. So Yes. Very exciting. Cool stuff. Okay. Uh, Happy anniversary to uh, Ryan. Yes. Started working on Dragon Talk eight years ago, right around now, we'll just say. And yep. it's thanks to Bart Carroll to, that got him uh, on it's board. It's true. Right? Yes, that Bart interviewed Ryan. And who famously said he doesn't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons, but he loves clean audio. Exactly. And, and that that's, is, that's all it takes. Um, so, very excited to welcome our guest and get into the conversations about... Dungeons and Dragons as an art form, uh, playing it in front of an audience. I think we've talked about that a bunch with a lot of creators, but uh, I think Humna's got some really great ideas about how to elevate this beyond just a bunch of people on a microphone on a screen. I agree. Why don't we find out? Let's do it. Let's welcome Humna Shahid to Dragon Talk! Yay! Welcome! Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So excited to have you here and chat about all the things you're doing uh, in the TRPG space. You are a a streamer and a player of of games and and, and many things. And some of them we've talked to uh, your DMs in the past. Yes, yes, yes. I know Connie has been on this show in the past. And that's been really, really exciting as well for Transplaner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So why... 
Can you just narrow it down for us, like some of the things that people might be familiar with you from or, or where, where are you being featured these days? Yeah. Uh, so I am primarily a, a tabletop performer. Uh, I am also dabbling in producing uh, nowadays as well. And I'm a cast member on a variety of different actual plays right now. So the shows that you can currently find me on uh, include Higher Education over on Avana's channel, uh, The Second Stranger over with Transplanter RPG, uh, Itaewon by Night, which is over on Bad House RPG, and The Mythic Initiative, which is on VO underscore Cologne's channels. Those are all long form, long term sort of campaigns that are currently ongoing. <laughs> I love that. I love that there's been this huge like growth in this type of programming that people can do it for for you know for Dungeons and Dragons, of course, but then for so many other uh, tabletop RPGs out there, and uh, I loved that. There's the Ituan by Night, like that's that's uh, the um, is it a vampire based? Uh, yes, one? yeah, it's a vampire fifth edition, Vampire the Masquerade uh, actual play. It's an all Asian cast, and we are playing in Itaewon, so in South Korea, um, and it's been a really really fun. AP to be a part of. We actually just wrapped up our first season and are kind of gearing up to do the second season of the show, which is really exciting. I love that. Yeah. Yes. What, what, uh, and I'm be, you know, being from that culture too, like what kind of things are you bringing to life in, uh, in that actual play and, and others? Yeah. So for Itaewon, uh, so I myself am not uh, South Korean, um, but I am like South Asian. And so uh, all of the cast for Itaewon are from different parts of Asia. Our GM, our storyteller for that game is uh, Josephine Kim, who is at Scary Dog Friend on Twitter. And Joe, uh, as the GM, has done a fantastic, amazing job in sort of pulling in all of her own um, knowledge and experiences from her culture into the story. And so it's really, um, when you watch it and when we play it, like I really do feel sort of like the the attention to detail and the care that like Joe is bringing to the show. Um, and it's very obvious that there are sort of different aspects of like her own culture, like specific mythologies, for example, specific stories, folk tales um, that are being brought into the show and being made relevant. And uh, Joe has also encouraged like all of us to sort of like bring in our own experiences as well. And that's been really interesting to sort of like, like play with and to sort of um, like see how uh, those kind of cultural influences can like mesh and meld together. And that's been a really fun experience uh, for me personally. I love that. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some examples? Uh, Cause that's always, I, I think, you know, listeners of this always love to hear like, you know, things that they can bring into their games as well. Like, so yeah, what are, what are some of the, the, the mythology and folklore uh, that, um, you know, it, it's being highlighted? Yeah. Uh, for Itaewon specifically, one of my favorites, uh, is that the whole uh, the whole sort of premise of the show for season one was like this murder mystery, right? So this one character has been killed off and our sort of coterie has been brought along to solve the murder and figure out like who did it, what happened, etc. And the whole murder mystery is kind of couched in this story of um, the only like major clue that we had to start with is that the person, whoever it was that did it, was seen with this like, uh, a hotel mask, which is like a very particular uh, mask that is often worn in um, specific 
Korean plays uh, that has sort of like this really cool effect of if you look at it from close up versus look at it from far away, there's like different expressions on the face. Um, And so that's sort of been a really fun, like symbolic uh, thing that Joe has brought into the game. and for <laughs> for my character, I remember asking during session zero, where I was like, oh, like, would you like us to play like Korean characters since we are, you know, set in uh, Seoul um, or set in Itaewon specifically? And, you know, Joe said like, no, like you can play like whoever you want. And I always make a point that uh, if you notice, like all of my characters across all of the shows that I'm on, um, they all have very specific like uh Muslim names because like I come from a Muslim background and um, I feel it important to sort of like uh, play characters that come from my own like culture and come from my own experiences. And so the characters that I play on Itaewon, for example, um, is Cerise Shaheen and um, like Cerise is very specifically like a like Pakistani like vampire character who has like moved to Itaewon um, to be a lawyer uh, and to sort of play in that space and like across all of the APs that I'm on, that's been true. So for example, um, I do it, especially I've like really leaned hard into it for the mythic initiative, which Mm. is a monster of the week campaign. And for that game, I play, um, a character named Misfit, who is one of the five children of the devil. And Mm. that comes from a very particular, uh, story. I don't know if it would necessarily be called a folk tale per se. I don't know if that's accurate, but it is from a particular myth um, amongst um, like Muslim uh, countries of this story of Iblis, the devil and his five sons. And so there's like this story of like, he has five children and they all have a different like domain that they're responsible for um, and things like that. And so Misfit is one of the five children from that story. Um, And his domain in the story is like lies that he's the devil of lies. And so Misfit, the character that I play is that I'm playing like a demon who is, whose domain is lies. And so Misfit can like, it's basically just a walking lie detector as well as part of it. Like he can tell when people are lying to to (laughs) him and when they're not, when they're uh, telling the truth. Um, And as part of that, the GM Chris has been really great in sort of bringing in Iblis like the devil as like a father figure and then also creating all of the other children as well. So I have four siblings in that game who are the other children of the devil. And that's been like part of the drama of the game is that they all exist as well and have their own motivations. Yeah. So it's been really fun to sort of like bring in like these specific mythologies from like different cultures and different um, experiences that we have as players um, and just sort of like embed them into the narratives that we're, that we're telling. I I want an entire adventuring party of to be the children of the devils. I think right? that's such a cool that's such a cool hook. I love it. <laughs> that would be what? really cool. Somebody should do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love this idea. I think uh, a lot of times especially new people will have a harder time thinking about their character's backstory or it can be overwhelming to come up with those ideas, but like really ideas are everywhere. They're like in the books that you're reading and the shows that you're watching and like you're saying some um, folklore from different cultures. But also I know that people would want to to be sensitive if they are trying to pull in some um, other cultural references outside of their own. So do you have tips on how best to approach that that kind of thing at a table if if you were someone who's inspired by other other cultures and wanted to maybe 
use some of that with your character or story? Yeah, I think the first thing um, that I always would recommend is for people to like start inward before you like start looking outward, because um, I think that there are so many really, really cool stories and myths in every single culture. And, you know, whatever your specific background is, I guarantee you there's there's a wealth of of stories, of folklore, of mythologies that you can pull from, characters uh, from stories that you can draw from for inspiration. And I think it can be, um, especially for uh, people of color, um, you know, when our narratives are not necessarily always um, being told or are not like given necessarily the same space uh, to be explored. It can be really powerful, I think, to be connecting with those stories and to sort of find that um that uh inspiration and to sort of delve into the history of the different cultures that we come from so i i would personally recommend like look inward first before you go outward but once you've done that and you are sort of looking out into other cultures especially as a gm where you know you might facilitating a narrative for people from other cultures um, that you don't necessarily come from. I think that the best thing to do for that is to always defer to other people that actually have lived experience. So, you know, asking other people like, hey, like what are um, best practices for telling this kind of story or uh, what are some things to avoid, you know, doing your research, like going out and reading documents, articles, texts, watching videos that like other people have put out about this kind of thing um, because there is such a wealth of resources that exist now thankfully on the internet right. uh, one of the good things about having that is that there is a, like a lot of people have talked about this kind of thing already and there's so much that you can draw on and so much that you can pull from I think when it comes to like doing an actual play, which I think is very different from like a home game, right? Mm. When you're doing an actual play, it becomes like an actual show. It becomes a production. And I think there's a greater level of responsibility as storytellers when we are uh, putting out like a show, like a piece of art or something like that. Um, and I think at that point that I would, you know, start to consider like, do you need a sensitivity consultant? Do you need multiple sensitivity consultants depending on the content that you're pulling in from? Um, at that point, you know, I would start to get into more of like the professional kind of considerations of like, um, if you have budget for it, like maybe it would be worth bringing in somebody who like, does this for a living and would be able right. to sort of help you navigate uh, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate in handling content from cultures that are not your own. Yeah. And above all, listening, right? That's, that's uh, I think, an important aspect there is that, you know, have these uh, uh, input from, from other people and, and, and take, take the notes. Yeah, yeah. Don't just don't just have them say it and then not do anything about it. Obviously, implementing the <laughs> advice that you're being given. Yeah, right. I, I think there's there's I, I've encountered some people be like, well, I had I had someone uh, and uh, I just ignored what they said because it wasn't my story uh, or wasn't where I wanted to go. And you're like, that's well, that defeats the purpose. <laughs> exactly, exactly. As well as like, it's just not a good dungeon master uh, way to be. Right. You want to listen and. Uh, um, you know, making sure everyone at the table is, is, is comfortable and, and uh, excited about the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to follow up on one thing you were just saying about um, uh, these tabletop uh, actual plays, and it goes into what I was saying earlier of like, yeah, there's just this, this wealth of people who are creating them, and I began with this idea of like, oh, well, wouldn't it be fun 
you know, to play in front of an audience. And that, you know, the technology kind of finally came, uh, caught up with the community's desire to do that type of thing. But you're talking about something which is 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 taking that and turning it into a show, turning it into a piece of art uh, that's similar to theater and 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 uh, other forms of show business. And you're right, that does shift the perspective of both the artists, I guess you have to call them artists now, the players and GM involved, and uh, the audience and that relationship. So that's that's a really interesting place that we're in now as this, this medium starts to mature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's like a range of actual plays that currently exist in this space. Um, you know, we have actual plays that are designed to just be like, like you said, just like people playing in front of a camera and it's not meant to be anything more than that. It's um, friends at a table, you know, we're all just kind of having a good time. We're here, we're playing and it's as raw, quote unquote, um, as possible so that people can sort of see that. And then we have, I think, like some actual plays that are designed to be like advertising for the games that they're playing. So they're here to like teach you how to play. They're here to like show you like what you can do with the system and like what kind of stories are possible to tell with the system. And they're very much, I think, meant to be uh, a way to get new players sort of involved into it and to say like, hey, like this could be something that you're into. Um, And then I think something that is a little bit newer um, from my understanding in this space in the industry is, as you were saying, like actual plays as theater, as like an art form, as a show. Um, And that is, I think, something that we as performers, as creators are still experimenting with, which is really exciting, I think, really, because it's such a new way of doing uh, storytelling. It's such a new medium that there's a lot of possibilities that we haven't explored yet. And I think that there's so much fertile ground, so much like rich possibilities within that. And I'm genuinely really excited to see every time a new actual play comes out, like, cool, okay, like what's the new thing that people are doing with this one? Like, what is the way in which they are kind of experimenting with this and um, kind of like taking the things that we like from each actual play and then like putting them together into like a Frankenstein of a new actual play in the future. Uh, I think it's genuinely really, really exciting. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your producing work that kind of is lending itself to what you're talking about. So what, what, what is your role? First of all, what is your role as a producer for, um, for an actual <laughs> play or for a live stream? Let's start the there. Word, yeah. I think the word, um, people use it in very different ways. So that's yeah. such a fair question. <laughs> When I say that I am a producer of actual plays, what I mean is that um, I kind of the I'm an executive producer and creative director is essentially if you're going to use like film terminology, that would be sort of the space that I exist in. So that means that I come up with the concepts for shows. I will uh, do casting. I will, you know, uh, look for sponsors and acquire like the funds necessary to pay everyone involved. Um, I will hire like, you know, the, the crew that is involved. So the people that will do marketing, that will do graphic design, et cetera. Um, and then depending on what it is, I may or may not be involved in the actual show itself. So I might play, I might not. If I'm just purely producing, then I'm not going to be in it. Um, but it, sometimes I sort of do a dual role of like producing the show and then also playing in it. Um, so it's kind of like project managing yeah. everything and kind of like getting the getting the ball rolling. Yeah. Organizing everything. Producer is such a catch-all term, but yeah. it, I, I, I've used it when I'm trying to describe it to other people. It's just like, you're the driving force. You're the person who is making the thing. 
And that can be different for each project and it is different for each project, but it really is like, okay, who's the, who's the person who, if they weren't pushing this rock would roll back down the hill? Yeah. And I mean, there's oftentimes multiple producers that are involved in a project as well. So uh, one that I'm actually working on right now that I'm super, super excited about uh, that at the time of this episode being released, we will have announced. uh, So I will talk about it. In the future. I love it. We're time traveling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Let's go into the future. Um, (laughs) I am producing a role sponsored one shot uh, with uh, Josephine Kim with Scary at Scary Dog Friend. Um, and so for that, Joe and I are working very closely to make that into a reality. And it's a project called Guria, uh, which is a Urdu slash Hindi term for doll. And uh-huh. it is a, the ethos of that one shot of that show is very much that it is meant to be an experiment. It is meant to be a, uh, just playing around with actual plays and what are the possibilities of actual plays specifically with regards to the visual aspect of it. Mm. Because right now, um, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations with performers and viewers in the actual play space. And I think the general sort of main consensus is that actual plays are something that you like listen to, but aren't necessarily something you watch. Like, there, there's not a whole lot that you lose from not watching the actual play. Oftentimes you can kind of just like put it on a second screen. It can be background while you do like other stuff and you can listen to it, um, which is great. But that really means that even when we have visual components to actual plays, that they're basically functioning like podcasts, right? Where it's just the audio component that's important. And it makes me wonder like, well, how can we play with the visuals? Because we have visuals. Um, so how can we play around with that and make it so that watching an actual play is actually part of the experience, that there is something that is lost as part of the narrative, as part of the storytelling, if you're not watching it and you're just listening to it. I kind of liken it to like a movie, right? Where it's like, you could listen to a movie, but by not watching it, there is, there's visual metaphors, there's like visual storytelling, there's something that is being lost Mm -hmm. um, through that process. And so how can we maybe port some of that uh, some of those principles into actual plays. Like, is that something that we can do? And so Goodyear as a project is kind of experimenting with that, is kind of looking at like, okay, how can we make the the overlays and like the different ways in which we are visually presenting this show actually important or actually compelling in some way? Oh, that's fascinating. Like if there was some type of storytelling element that was happening based on what was said, I'm just spitballing here, but like if there were eyes that glowed red when someone was lying or something like that, right? Or mm-hmm. like, or when the GM was telling something that was supposed to be true or something like that. But, it, you know, it, yeah, there's so many fun ways that you can play with that. Now, also, you mentioned the doll. What if there was a creepy doll in the back of someone's shot that you had like worked together with their partner or something like that to like put it in the in, in halfway through and then they didn't even know it was there. And then you, you as a GM got to be like, oh, right, that doll's right behind you. I'm thinking of, horrible things. yeah yeah i think Maybe these are not a creepy really cool doll greg <laughs> as soon as you said doll i was like oh like i, I know, don't know like, but it could just be like a lovely doll it, it, could be, it could be a nice doll it doesn't have to be a creepy one <laughs> i will say that this this one shot is a horror one shot okay, okay. <laughs> we were, we were right we were, yeah that was the correct vibe I knew it. for it <laughs> um yeah no those are some really really cool ideas and i think that we have to acknowledge that of course um this means, I think that this 
will translate differently for live streams versus like pre-recorded content. Like it would be so much harder to do this live, obviously. Right. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, tabletops are improv and you don't know what visual elements you might need. Right. Um, When you're playing, you can try your best to plan for it, but ultimately there is an element of surprise there. Whereas I think something like this is maybe a little bit more conducive to actual plays that are pre-recorded and therefore you have the option to sort of go and then edit stuff in, in post and to, you know, you have the benefit of hindsight of knowing, okay, cool. Like this is what happened in the narrative. And then you can think about how can we uh, elevate that storytelling with the visuals of it. Um, but yeah. not everybody is doing pre-recorded content, so obviously that doesn't necessarily translate for everybody. It, c- it could be done with live production, but you would need, you know, to scale up your production to be able to do that, right? I'm thinking of the few ones that have been able to do it uh, have done it with, you know, casts of, of of dozens and then, you know, more than dozens behind the scenes to be able to pull off uh, that type of stuff. And you're you're talking about a little bit more on the the static one webcam in front of a monitor Type mm-hmm. of thing, but I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I love being able to bring some of those principles from from theater to uh, uh, yeah more more live plays. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing too. I wanted to ask too because you you're using the term actual plays, which people have used for a long time to describe. Um, I guess let's plays is what people used to describe YouTube videos that were pre streaming that were all about like just watching people play through a video game. Uh, and then I've I've used live play, even if it's not live, because it usually in, it involves a live component. But yeah, part of it being a new medium and a new way of talking about it is that we have to settle on the terms and the things that of, of what what it means. So yeah, why did why does actual play kind of work for you and in, in your understanding of of that definition? It's the term that I like was introduced to the Mm. format to live plays, actual plays, whatever you want to call them. That was the term I was introduced to uh, when I first sort of discovered that this was a thing. And it's just kind of stuck. It's just the term that I've like heard everybody using. um, And the one that uh, I think just uh, by principle of like convenience is the one that sort of like makes sense in the space for me if I'm sort of thinking about it like why actual play um I think the principle or the idea behind it anyway is that you are actually playing the game uh, versus it being like a scripted thing so mm. differentiating between uh using a tabletop as a medium to produce like an audio drama which could be possible which is something that people can do and I think some people might already be doing as well uh versus like an actually playing the game and it actually being improv um so i think that might be where that term comes from don't quote me on that though that is just my best that's your understanding of it too that's my understanding of it yeah even as you're describing i'm like well we have had game shows for a long time which Mm -hmm. are pre-recorded but there is the you know the idea that someone is actually playing jeopardy in the real time (laughs) that we're watching it right Mm -hmm. Uh, but those are called Mm -hmm. you know that term game show stuck we never used that in in our in our streaming space, and then improv is another one because basically what we're talking about is improv, right? Which is yeah. usually has a uh, a comedic uh, you know, definition associated with improv, even though it improv could be anything, right? So yeah, there's there's terms that are there but are borrowed by other genres a little bit. So we'll I kind of think that's how actual plays like are really right like it that that in and of itself i think is a microcosm of the fact that actual plays to me anyway do feel like a frankenstein of so many other mediums and Mm. so many other forms of like storytelling 
the way that we've sort of built them. Like we take principles from, like you said, like from improv theater, uh, regardless of genre, whether that's comedic improv, dramatic improv, whatever, what have you. Uh, we borrow elements from there. We borrow, uh, borrow elements from uh, cinema, from theater, um, you know, from even from like books. I've seen people take inspiration from the way that you would like write a novel to, mm. to create their actual plays. And so in a way, I think the genre really is this, as I, as I said, like a Frankenstein of so many other forms of storytelling. And it comes through in the language that we use as well. And that's sort of part of it right now, too, is that we don't necessarily have very clear, um, we haven't agreed as sort of a community or as an industry about what language we even want to use to describe these shows, right? And I think that that uh, is just sort of part of the fact that it is so new and we are still all sort of experimenting and kind of playing around with it, uh, which is um, exciting. And also I think sometimes confusing as well uh, right. when we use sort of the same term to mean different things. But part of that is because it's so new. And then also you, but you're working on uh, a project that will, um, yeah, I'd love to, to hear about it. I, I don't want to speak for you, but like <laughs> the idea of describing this as an art form, what, what, what is that project? Is it, is it a book of some kind or, or yeah. Uh, so it is a actual play. It is a one shot. Um, I am being purposefully vague about the details oh, I of see. it. I was for... I was going on your because I was going to ask about your uh, academic uh, career as well, and I wondered Ooh. if there was something that was was tied to that. It, you, you're mm. talking about the the awesome doll uh, 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 themed one. Yes, yes, uh, that is. Uh, a separate project that is not related to the sort of academic side of things uh, I that I do. Um, but on sort of the academic side of things, uh, I have been working on um, and kind of am ongoing working on a, you can call it like a research study. Uh, I'm working on an, on an article basically that is looking at the possibility of using tabletop games Uh regardless of whether they're like shows or not. So even like home games count in this case, mm -hmm. uh, using tabletop games as a way to allow people to practice using what I, what I call and what like activists call the radical imagination. So it's this mm -hmm. idea that um, in order to be able to bring about positive change into the world, however you want to define positive change, you have to first be able to imagine that world before you can actually do anything to bring it about. So for example, if we are thinking about a world in which, um, you know, like homophobia and transphobia doesn't exist, a world in which um, queer trans folks are allowed um, and able to just exist and to do so safely and to, you know, um, live like joyous, full lives, we have to first be able to imagine that world before we can actually do anything tangibly uh, in our lives to make that a reality, right? Because we need something to work towards. That's sort of the principle behind the radical imagination. And I think um, that can often become something that's really hard for people to do because we are steeped in so much of, you know, quote unquote, like, like society TM, right? Like we, <laughs> we live and breathe the air of all of these structures that tell us that this is how like the world is and this is how it has to be. And so it can be really, really hard to imagine something different. And so part of my, um, one of the research studies that I'm working on is looking at, but what if we were able to use tabletops to help people practice? doing mm -hmm. that? Because in tabletops, we're allowed to just suspend disbelief. Yeah. We're allowed to say, you know it's what, what this doing. isn't, 
Yeah, exactly. We're allowed to say like, hey, you know what? This isn't how the world is, but that's fine. Like we've created this this space where we can say, yeah, we're going to imagine a world in which like dragons are real. So like, why can't we also right. imagine a world in which like transphobia doesn't exist, right? Like, we willingly like just give in to the idea of like, of course, lightning bolts come out of my fingers. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, why couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like Transplaner is a really, really good example of that, where uh, the world of Ndake that Connie has created and the story that we've all agreed to tell as um, as performers for Transplaner is like, yeah, like transphobia, uh, racism, like homophobia, none of that exists. And like, you'll notice that if you watch The Second Stranger, the, the campaign on Transplaner, all of the drama, all of the conflict that is in the story is driven by everything else. It's driven by the characters. It's driven by interpersonal conflict. It's driven by um, the fact that there's an apocalypse happening. <laughs> like it's driven by magical forces. It's um, it's driven by all of these other things and none of the conflict, none of the drama comes from any sort of bigotry at all. Like none of the characters experience um, like people being uh, discriminatory towards them for any reason. And uh, I think that that is something that we have actively chosen to do as like part of the cast. Um, And that was very important to Connie when world building as well. And um, I think it just shows that like, yeah, like we, we can still have like a, we can still have a good narrative that doesn't utilize these things because I think sometimes that's becomes the counter argument is like, Oh, but like, how can I have conflict if like there isn't a system to um, fight against? And it's like, well, this is asking us, okay, but like, let's get creative with it. Like, what are sources of conflict that aren't that? Like, what are ways in which uh, we can tell those stories? And so, A, it, it forces us to be a little bit more creative, I think, uh, when we create stories. But B, um, it just also, like, makes us feel, at least for myself, like, makes me feel, like, safe and empowered as a person um, at this table to know that, yeah, this world, like, is not going to hurt me in that way. It will hurt me in other ways because... Yeah. There are still dragons. There are still dragons. <laughs> and, you know, there is still a heartache and heartbreak in this show. It is very, very sad. Um, but um, it won't hurt me in that way. And I think that is a very empowering space to play in and to exist in. That's important. I, I've been saying uh, on this podcast for the last couple of months that, like, playing these games is a net good for humanity. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any academic uh, things to back that up. But now with this research paper, I actually will. I'll be like, there is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the opinions of at least uh, some academics out there that this can be a force for, for for positive change in our world. And I, as you were describing all that, I kept thinking of how many times everybody's experienced this where you're younger and more excited about changing the world and making it a better place. and some older person says, well, that's just not how the way the world works. Right. And you're like, but why not? And this is, this is the perfect way to show like there is the possibility for, 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 for positive change. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, history has actually shown that. It's actually, you know, been able to, mm-hmm. to, to, to improve somewhat <laughs> people's lives uh, by having this, this, um, this dream and this, this, this uh, vision. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think like the more that we practice doing that, the more that we practice, you know, even if it's in a game, even if it's in a tabletop, the more that we practice uh, asking ourselves, like, what if this thing we took for granted wasn't real? Like, what are the alternatives? Like, what are some other ways that we could do things? Um, And, you know, like you can expand that out to so many different areas of life where you can say like, hey, like, here's this thing that we take for granted in real life. Let's play with it. Let's say like, okay, what if that wasn't real? Like, what else could we do? Um, I think that the more that we practice that, not just alone, but with other people, um, the easier it becomes to do. And I think the easier it becomes to translate that skill into real life, into outside of the game. Um, I think it just makes us more creative problem solvers as well, just in general. And so um, I do genuinely believe there is a lot of potential within tabletop games to do good and to help people um, bring about positive change in real life, which to someone who maybe doesn't play, you know, tabletops like might sound silly where they're like, oh, but you're just like sitting around a table, like pretending to be these like other characters. And, you know, I just think that art um, and games like playing uh, like theater, et cetera. Like, I think these things have power to them. They have the ability to, they have the, uh, they have the ability to give us permission to go to places that we don't normally allow ourselves to go in real life because we have agreed as a table, as a group, that those rules don't apply. Um, And I think that is a really beautiful thing and is a very powerful thing um, that the play space lets us do. Absolutely. Yeah. So back to the the concept of radical imagination, which is almost like manifesting the world that you want to see and exist in and live in. But how do you turn that into action? Like how, what would be the next step is like this world that we can imagine? Like how can we start enacting to make this a reality, to change? That's a really great question. And I think, uh, I think honestly, that is so dependent on what exactly we're talking about and like what problem we're trying to tackle and who is trying to tackle it and to what end. Um, so, for example, you know, one one thing that I think about is uh, when we consider the just the negative effects that like policing has had on various marginalized communities, you know, um, one of the key like counter arguments that I hear all the time where people will say is, oh, well, you know, how can we have a safe community without police presence? Like, how is that even possible? And I think tabletops can be a really f- interesting way um, and a really powerful way to imagine like what are ways that we as communities can keep each other safe that doesn't involve you know a police force Um, what does that even look like and I think um, the exciting thing for me is that we will all come up with very different answers for that right depending on what we think is important uh, for safety and depending on even our communities because different communities have different needs have different uh, desires for for themselves and so uh, I think Honestly, like depending on what it is, the action will look different. So it might look like, um, you know, starting a mutual aid network. You know, it might be like, okay, cool. We've recognized that there is a lack of money that is sort of... um, there's financial strain on the community. And we recognize that if we pool our resources, then we can sort of at least temporarily uh, help fix that 
cool, you might start a mutual aid network or uh, you might go and, I don't know, create a zine. You know, people love making zines. You might create a zine to raise awareness about something or to educate people about something um, that you recognize, like maybe there's not a lot of resources about this thing that people, um, you know, have talked about. You can make a zine of like, um, here's all of the different potential ideas that we have of like ways to keep the neighborhood safe that don't involve policing. Um, and then you could like put that out there and that will help, you know, get other people thinking about the possibilities or you might, I don't know, um, you know, like sort of on the low barrier to entry side, like start a petition or, you know, like go, um, create uh, like a phone zap where you all get together one day and it's like an hour and you just like call uh, relevant like politicians or something and you all inundate them with phone calls at the same time. Um, you know, there's like a lot of different, yeah. the, the point being there's so many different ways to sort of yep. turn things into action. And it super depends, I think, on what you collectively agree is the most effective way of sort of moving forward with the the ideas that you've created. Yeah. I, I like the parallels of what you're saying there to artwork created in the 50s and 60s that were around, you know, specific issues, right? Like uh, uh, racial inequality and, you know, against uh, occupying uh, Vietnam and things like that. But like there, there was this group of people, mostly musicians, you know, some other things, but they didn't necessarily take the activist steps that you were just talking about, but they created the art around it that allowed people to change their perspective and push others into potentially being those activists. So in some ways, you're talking about like the artists need to uh, dream the dream, put it out there. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people with other skill sets who can take up that dream and try to make it a reality. And, some, and sometimes those two groups can be, you know, subsets of the other. But in general, I love what we were talking about, which is like, we just need to get the ideas out there so that they can germinate into something you know maybe yeah. not even now maybe 20 years from now similar to how you know many of those pieces of artwork didn't necessarily change anything right then but they might have changed perspectives you know decades later that we're feeling now yes i love the idea of like a DD &D game as the new powerpoint like i could like show you on my <laughs> slides but you know what no Let's get in this world. Let's experience this world. Let's immerse ourselves in it. And you can really see what it's all about. No more PowerPoints for me. I'm done. <laughs> Every, all my presentations <laughs> are now going to be... Every meeting is going to be a game. <laughs> a it's mini funny game. that you say that, though, because, like, no joke, that is sort of my goal with the end of, like, this research study is to create a functionally, like, a workshop, which is really just... Yeah. Really just a one-shot. Um that allows people to do that, to do what you described, Shelley, of like, yeah, like, let's immerse ourselves in this world. Let's actually play with these principles and see what that feels like and see yeah. uh, what ideas come out. That That is the goal at the end of the day. I can see of it. This research. As you're talking about it, I'm like, yes, this is, this is the new way to think about it. The virtual reality. I have a friend, this is a, just a quick random story, but I had a friend, we, we as a group, we were getting into board games uh, recently and uh, she uh, is an activist as well. And she was like, oh, I kickstarted this board game that's all about social change and, and, and how to get those ideas across. We played it. Uh, and unfortunately, it's just not a very compelling board game. It's a very good, uh, like, teaching tool, you know? Like, I feel like, oh, yeah, yeah this allowed some, some empathy to, to get in. Uh, but I kept thinking, like, this would be so much better as a role-playing game. This would, be, this would get the ideas uh. across... So much better if you were having to make choices, not based on whether or not you would win, 
in in a in a very linear kind of almost life style board game. I was like, but if you if you were able to get these ideas across, but with, with having people embody these these characters who come from different backgrounds, I just feel like that would have been uh, a much more illustrative experience. Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about, right? So yeah, I, I love putting the, yourself in it. That's the thing that I think is powerful, right? It's the it's the actually, like you said, embodying the principle and being asked to just put everything else aside and to say, okay, but like, what if we just played? where this was true and you believed that in character like what would you do how would you act what would you right. think i think that the the being in that space fully is the powerful part i think because it kind of like tricks our brains right to sort of be in that space um and that kind of goes into related to like safety conversations uh about like role playing where um I can't remember who said this, but um, somebody said that like your brain can't tell the difference between yes, role playing and it that. being real life. Mm. Um, so this idea that like when something really particularly like negative happens in a game, like oftentimes the reason that we have bleed is because our brains kind of get tricked to believe like, oh, it's happening to me. I feel yeah. unsafe right now, um, even if, you know, you are fine. And that's why we have like safety tools, decompression, et cetera, to help sort of mitigate the negative effects of, you know, playing out things that are very difficult. But I think we can use that on the flip side as well of like, okay, let's let's um, put ourselves into spaces where uh, we are hopeful about the future. We are hopeful about change. We are hopeful about um, all of these possibilities. And, you know, our brains can't tell the difference. <laughs> and so I think that would be uh, that leveraging sort of the ways in which cognition kind of functions in that way, I think yeah. is a very powerful tool. That is really powerful because it's also, I mean, just going back to the competitive board game, trying to do the same thing. Monopoly was created as a way to uh, lampoon and poke fun at landlords and how terrible they are. But I played it in the, you know, and I didn't get that message uh, until much later when I <laughs> started to rent properties on my own. I'm like, oh yeah, landlords do suck. This is terrible, right? <laughs> but like, it, we're we're so much tuned into the winning, and I think that's another component where there is no winning in 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 D and D. It's it's you win by working together as a, as a, as a team to complete the story. But that's not winning. You're just doing it as as a, a, a community goal which I think is so much more important and wholesome to the actual change that you're talking about versus framing it always in the, you know, I, I, I got boardwalk. So now, you, you know, you're, you're bankrupt. You want a beauty pageant. You want a beauty pageant. <laughs> $25 for you. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. I think the fact that there is like a narrative that you're supposed to be telling. Um, and that's really just the goal is to just tell a story together. Uh, I think that is important to this for sure absolutely uh so you we only have a couple of minutes left but i did want to uh you know uh, talk a little bit about how your um uh you know identity and and you know, we talked about your cultural identity but then also like how uh trans people can uh experience these games and uh, i'd love to you know yeah hear anything about your experience as far as uh, how role playing games helped shape that, or, 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 or you know, you know, enriched your your lived experience uh, through role playing in that way. For sure, uh, I am a like queer, agender, Pakistani person, and so uh, I operate or I live on sort of the axes of multiple marginalized identities. And for me, uh, being at tables with other people who have the same or very similar lived experiences has been honestly 
like a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to be able to sit together and to explore uh, narratives together that we don't necessarily have to do like a lot of heavy lifting in terms of explaining stuff to each other. Like um, for a transplaner, like transplaner is so heavily a very queer and trans story. There's no way around it uh, because everybody on that cast is queer and trans. And so when we tell those stories together, like the complicated drama, the interpersonal conflicts, the romance, the everything that is in that, the the story about love, the story about the power of love and what it can do for us as individuals and as a community. Inherently, the way in which we tell that story is informed by our identities as queer trans people. And for me personally, like my character on Transplaner, Jaron Gather, is an exploration of that, um, is an exploration of what does it mean to love somebody so deeply that uh, you end up like hurting the people that you love because you are so focused on this idea of helping them, of loving them, of keeping them safe, that you're unable to see sort of all of the other factors of it. And how do you get lost in that? And then what is the redemption, redemptive factor in that? How do you fall from grace in that way? And then how do you allow the people that you've hurt to love you in such a way as to redeem you, uh, to do better by them? And I, and I don't think that I could have explored that story with any other table. Like, I really do think that that needed to be uh, at that particular table in that particular space to be able to really tell that story. Um, and for me, just be, being in these spaces with other people that like really understand my lived experiences not only allows me to, I think, go places in, you know, tabletop games that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise feel comfortable going to, but it also just helps me feel seen, right? Mm -hmm. Like when other people are telling stories or making decisions in character or, you know, uh, that I am not involved with, but are informed by very similar experiences that we have, you know, like I feel very seen by that. And like, there's a sense of camaraderie in that. And like, I, I don't think that uh, that kind of experience is just, like, describable. I don't, I don't know how to describe sort of the very, com- like, comforting, like, like, breath of fresh air, like, relief feeling that I get from being in that space with other people. It really, really is priceless. And I know that we, like... I know that people sometimes joke about sort of the low hanging fruit of representation, but I really do think that there is something special about seeing yourself represented in a, in a story, in a character. Um, Especially if that is not something that you have experienced before or have not experienced very often before, it is a very powerful experience to be like, yeah, no, like the thing that I go through, other people also go through it. And like other people also have similar uh, feelings and similar thoughts. Um, Yeah. And just to know that you're part of a community really. Uh, mm-hmm. is is so so absolutely amazing and i'm thinking of the the trans people who are listening and, and paying attention to this as well too right like you've got that community there and then it it has a halo effect on, of, of every uh, uh person who is who's interacting with this whether they're trans or not right even what we we're talking about are people who, who are able to walk and feel and, and empathy of of that lived experience and realize that you know it's certainly very unique but it's also not, as we were saying, it. You know, many many people feel heartbreak. Many people feel all these things, and it's it's a a way to be like, oh, there there's there's more that unites us than 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 uh, makes us different. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And the community that you're building around all of these different, um, the, the groups and the actual plays, like the transplanter community is, is, is huge and it's a wonderful, safe place for other people um, who are sharing those lived experiences. So that's, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see yourself represented, but then to also find that community where you can also feel represented and secure. It's like the radical imagination. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's like, it, that's what you're, you're creating there. But we all yeah. get to watch and we all get to see it, it unfold. Yeah, I've been very lucky to get to have met and watch and work with and befriend so many wonderful, wonderful creators and performers in the tabletop industry. Honestly, a lot of them are like some of my absolute closest friends now. And it, um, I do not think that I would be in the place that I am, like in a very positive way. I don't think I would be in the place that I am had I not met a lot of these people. And so I really do have, uh, tabletop role-playing games, but specifically the actual play industry to thank for that. And as, you know, as many problems as there exist in the industry, as they do with all industries, I think that there is still, um, the optimistic side of me anyway, likes to focus on the fact that there is a very rich, um, wealth of communities that exists in this space. And it's just a matter of finding, the communities that you resonate with that, you know, speak to your values that speak to who you are as a person and um, making connections there because like I I've been so, so lucky to be able to do that. And I, I want other people to feel similarly as well. Honestly, being a part of a community is a balm for so many ailments in life, you know, feeling connection uh, is so important. Definitely. Well, and it sounds like the work you're doing is, going to make that possible for more people. So we are lucky to have you. Oh, that's so kind of you to say. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I'm excited about, yeah, right? Like the fact that you're pushing the boundaries of what this is, is as an art form, as well yeah. as, you know, uh, forging these communities and being uh, that representation for so many people out there. Like it's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and I want to know when that research paper is done. So that Me I too. As a, citing, uh, a citation in every Dragon Talk episode. Go for I it. will <laughs> let you know. <laughs> so awesome. Well, you mentioned these uh, shows that you're on, but I'll give you a chance to do so again uh, and get people who uh, uh, are listening here, uh, you know, the opportunity to start following along on whichever one makes sense for them. Yeah. So uh, hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Hamna. I use any and all pronouns. And as I mentioned, I am a tabletop performer and producer. Um, You can find me on Twitter at hshahid underscore, where I talk about all of the different projects I'm a part of. I'm on a lot of different APs, as I mentioned. And so Twitter is the best place to know where I am at any given point in time. Uh, I would like to specifically shout out Guria, our very experimental one shot that is coming out. If you keep an eye on the nameless domain Twitter page, you will see some very interesting content coming out leading up to the show. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. So that is nameless domain on Twitter. Nice. Domain that shall remain nameless. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Amna, for being on and, and talking about this. We can't wait to to uh, to have you back on and talk about this research paper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm super, super stoked. 
What a fan. Oh my gosh. Fascinating conversation with Hamna. There is so much there to unpack, right? I know. I was like, I really kind of like getting into the producer weeds too. It's fascinating. I know, right? I had more questions. So I guess uh, they'll just have to come back. They will. It's true. And producer is such a great role. It's catch-all. I mean, I meant it when I said it. Like, it's just the person who keeps things moving on a project. And that is something I think we need better teaching for in all of our disciplines. Like, every, everybody needs a producer in their lives. I, oh, that would be amazing. Right? Yes. Take these post-it notes and just make them happen. Please. Please. <laughs> as long as they don't get into up. any scrums, we should be okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Scrum-free producing. <laughs> <laughs> we have enjoyed having Ryan Marth as producer as well as Lisa Carr. So shout out to them on this day of Yay! days. It's been eight years of working together, and it's going to be eight more. I think, going forward. Yes, until Fiona and Quinn take over this podcast. <laughs> That's true. We'll <laughs> hand it down to them uh, like we are uh, hereditary. <laughs> <laughs> this is your lineage. I dub thee Sir Quinn <laughs> of the Dragon Talk table. Quinn would be like, oh, yeah. I remember when my parents used to force me to play D&D. Remember that? <laughs> right. And then yeah. uh, they would then play Pennywise and uh, scare each other with lots of high-pitched screaming. Oh, gosh, yes. I can and that's not a now. podcast that anybody wants to listen to. Except for them. Except for <laughs> the Screaming Kids podcast. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, you can find out all about that and all of our other projects uh, online. Uh, you can find me at Greg Tito on Twitter. I am also on uh, Mastodon and Hive and co-host under all those things, as well as Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Much more simple for me. I am at Shelly Moo on Twitter and Instagram. So come on over there. And you've got that cool author website that I am looking at longingly. Really? I need Are one you too. visiting my website? I have been visiting your website. ShellyMazinoble.com is that website. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I should do some updating over there. Now I've guilted you into it. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's a, those posts go deep though, like way back in time. So you can read some, some real early works. That's exciting. Right. A lot of them about, you know, parenting and and all that noise. A lot about D&D too. Gosh, it does go back deep because I think I had it when my first book came out and that was like 2007. Before there even was internet. <laughs> In the before times it was of just, no yeah. internets of 2007, which I'm pretty sure there were, it wasn't internet back then, but those God. of you listening probably did, weren't even alive. So No, I was just a, a child. A, yeah, right? You were like a 12 wee, years old when you wrote a that. A wee baby just trying to make an, a website happen. I was probably like, today in fourth grade, my friend... <laughs> Like that's something really mean to me. <laughs> I love that we've kept this going for as long as we have. I will continue for forever. Speaking of continuing, Drunky Two Shoes is walking through the Radiant Citadel on her way to meet with the uh, final, the third Tabaxi individual that is still on the Radiant Citadel. You've uh, recruited Jonathan. 
met Samson as well as Altia, a, a, a woman tabaxi. Yes. With um, very nice white and um, light brown fur. Very, very attractive, yes. And uh, you guys were joking around about what was in your wine skin. It might be bathtub wine. Uh, and uh, you had a, quite a bit of a long walk because um, Altia knows of a older tabaxi woman uh, who kind of lives by herself. Uh, and she's taking you to the hut uh, that she found uh, one day. She's explaining this to you. She's like, yeah, I was walking around the city one day and I saw this, this old woman uh, who was just um, sweeping her stoop with a makeshift broom that looked like it was made out of um, some type of you know fur, very hastily uh, bound to a stick. It was very um, homemade looking of this tool. And, and as I looked at this woman, I, was, I realized that she was like me. She was a tabaxi. And we're going to find her? Yeah, I'm going by. I, I think she's still at that hut. I, I hope she is anyway. Did you talk to her? She was very rude. She didn't want to engage with me. She just <clears throat> uh, and grunted uh, at me uh, when I tried to say hi and be friendly. It's very different than you who have been quite so open and and uh, wanting to speak with me and stroking my paw as, as we've been walking all this time. It's very different from you. Well, I appreciate that. She's obviously not a fan of the hooch like I am, if you know <laughs> what I mean. I think we can loosen her up a little. Some of my bathtub gin. Maybe, maybe. Who knows? Maybe that's why she was uh, disgruntled that day. But I never went back. Hopefully she's still around. That was uh, a few years ago. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Um, so you make your way through uh, the city uh, further. Um, there is a, a general hubbub of commerce and things that are going on. Um, but then you eventually turn a corner and get to more... Um, residential street uh, that goes uh, to the west of the Avoral Diamond. And um, she makes another turn and another turn. And then uh, it seems like you're in a uh, an alleyway and the stars and uh, twisting nether that is on the outside of this citadel uh, is right in front of you. It's actually uh, really disconcerting. Uh, and even Jonathan uh, says, like, what? Oh, I'm not near the edge very often. Yeah, this is weird. Fortunately, as a tabaxi, I am very agile, but very nervous. Um, and Samson says, are you sure there's no danger of us being pulled off of this floating city? Yeah, well, what's the whole gravity situation up here? Altia says, well, no, everything's fine. You're not going to float off into nothingness. That would be ridiculous. Do people fall off of this thing, though? I Every once in a while, there is a tragic accident with a, uh, a, a child or someone who gets too close to the edge. It's awful. Uh, but from birth, everyone on this uh, citadel is taught not to get as close to the edge. You know, that's why it's uh, usually the, the domiciles that are this close are um, not inhabited, inhabited. Most of the people try to live closer to the Royal Diamond. Yeah, I don't like this. I, I maybe had maybe an, like slightly more to drink at lunch than I should have. I didn't know I was going to be tightrope walking on a crystal. You're not, I mean, you guys are on a, on a street. It's not, it's not, you're getting closer to it now. It's like the backyards of some of these places might actually get to that edge, but there are no parks or things like that where, hey, a stray ball might fall into it. Uh, that would be crazy, uh, says Jonathan. It's kind of freaking drunky out though. 
That is understood. Uh, a lot has uh, changed in your world perspective over the last few days. Yeah. So you make it to this hut, uh, and you see it is a small, uh, you know, maybe 15 feet by 15 feet uh, thatched hut uh, with a roof um, made of reeds and grass uh, woven together. Um, and the uh, materials of the walls uh, appear to be uh, some type of wood, but there's lots of scratch marks uh, all around them. Um, so it looks like it might have been scavenged uh, or, or or put together from from another source. It doesn't look like it's made with materials that were created simply for for building. Um, and the solid wooden door is closed. It's not painted. It's just uh, a plain wooden door with you know planks um, and a latch, metal wrought iron latch, keeping it closed. Okay. This, I saw this woman here. She was here outside this front stoop, but it, it looks like the door is closed. Uh, I'm just going to go knock. Okay. So you go up and knock on the door. Yep. And um, here. There is, there's no immediate answer. Knock, knock, knock. You knock again? Yes. You hear a woman's voice say, go away. <gasps> Don't want any. Mama? What? Mama. Mama, and uh, you hear, oh, for the love of the cat lord. <laughs> oh, uh, love and, of cat uh, a lot of grunting. Uh, mm, you're hearing all this coming from the door. Uh, the latch very reluctantly opens, uh, and the door, just a few inches, you see eyes with a uh, face of a tabaxi. Almost all the fur is white with a few uh, flakes of, of gray hair, uh, blackish hairs. What do you want? Mama. Who's mama? You. <laughs> I ain't your mama. My bad. Hi, my name is Drunky Two Shoes. I am a visitor from a different plane, and I believe that you have some information about my brother and possibly my entire family. She says, all right, come in. Oh, uh, these are my friends, Jonathan. Just you. Sam. Get in here. And she, yeah, she she asks you to come in. Um, okay. All Stay right. here, guys. You go in and uh, she closes the door and latches it. Can we leave that unlocked? There was no lock to begin with, lady. You latched it. Yeah, it's a latch, it's not a lock. You know, you know, what am I dealing with an imbecile here? Wow. Do you like to drink? <laughs> Well, if you don't drink, you die. So yeah, I'd like to drink. We are definitely related. I take out my water skin. Do you have a glass? Never had much use for it myself. Oh, not a fan of sharing bottle. You offered. If you don't want to share, I don't know skin off my <sighs> I mean, I, if you had a glass, I would be happy to pour some into your glass. I don't like... She uh, looks around and you actually kind of see her, her uh, interior is extremely bare. Uh, she's got a table... Um, and uh, mm. there is a, a lot of refuse kind of uh, strewn about. It almost looks like uh, there's no different rooms. It's just like a one room. She doesn't really have much of a kitchen. Uh, just a, a small fire uh, in the hearth. And Okay, all right. all right. All right, all right, all uh, right. I'll, I'll take out my mess kit, which I have in my equipment, and I take out a bowl, and I pour some into the bowl. Mm. And I actually 
will give her the water skin that has more in it. And I will just drink out of this shallow little bowl, like the kitty cat that I am. Okay. She takes the wine skin and sniffs it. Mmm. Smells terrible. Mm. And she drinks a big swig of it. Wow. Ooh. Right? It's mighty powerful. It is. You made this? Yeah. Uh, all right. I can make more. You're hired. Uh, what do you know about the the Two Shoes family? <sighs> and we'll end there. With a big sigh? A big sigh. She looks at you. She kind of, she's like kind of, you know, she was in that mode of enjoying what you had offered. And, and uh, when she looks at you, she pauses kind of mid when you say two shoes and takes that big sigh. And we will come back. All right. Like it. Excited. I love that you're like, this is definitely my mom. And you're like, That's my mom. <laughs> what do you want? We shall see. Bye.